0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Sandra Banfield and Mark Curry. There are so many ways that our society is constantly taking bites, big and little, out of nature. Of course, that isn't quite the right way to think about it. Our environment is not something separate from us that we either consume or leave alone. Rather, it is a whole world that we exist in relationship with, whether we choose to recognize that or not. But in how we relate to specific places or to other elements of these systems, the choice of doing so such that we work with that which is already going on, versus doing so such that we override, displace, decomplexify, and commodify, often looks a lot like a choice between leaving it alone or taking a bite out of it. And for so many of the ways in which our society is taking these bites, there's little opportunity for a collective social decision about whether this is something that we really want to be doing. And even in that minority of instances where past struggle has won mechanisms that seem to be doing this, such as around questions of property development in urban and suburban municipalities, the space for genuinely participatory and collective community decisions about such things can be vanishingly small. To make an impact, communities often have no choice but to mobilize. Bedford, Nova Scotia, is a suburban bedroom community on the outskirts of Halifax. Because of the location of a particular rail line built during the 1850s, Bedford's waterfront managed to make it into the 21st century relatively undeveloped. But with the possibility of profits to be made, in more recent years, developers began pushing forward various projects and plans, And after a particularly unsatisfying public event in 2010 that was supposedly about consulting the community, but that came across more like notifying them, the Save Bedford's Waterfront Society was born. In the five years of its existence, the group has had remarkable success in researching the issues and educating and mobilizing the public in Bedford and in Halifax more generally. Mark Curry is the group's president and has done much of its research, and Sandra Banfield is its vice president and is in charge of its social media work. They talk with me about the issue, the group, and its ongoing struggle to save Bedford's waterfront. We spoke by Skype to phone from Bedford, Nova Scotia.
1: My name is Mark Curry. I'm president of Save Bedford's Waterfront Society.
2: And my name is Sandra Banfield. I'm Vice President of the Bedford Waterfront Society, and I handle all the social media.
1: The society was formed as a community group to reflect the wishes of the local area residents as to what we would like to see happen down at the Bedford Waterfront in terms of the direction of development. Bedford is part of the city of Halifax. The suburban neighborhood, it's considered a bedroom community of Halifax. So you would have people that live in Bedford, typically, but not always, work in Halifax. That's roughly 15 to 20 kilometers away from downtown. The waterfront was, for the most part, a naturalized shoreline that was, for the most part, separated from the mainland from the railway, which was put through in the 1850s. Because the railway had sliced along the waterfront, there was a remnant shoreline that was essentially preserved for generations. And it wasn't until recent decades that there was a plan to look at that waterfront and expand it in such a way that they could bring more people down to the waterfront. Back in June 2010, there was a public meeting regarding the vision for the waterfront. And shortly before that, I had my son down on the waterfront. It's a wonderful place to take children to explore the intertidal zone and get physical with the water and get right next to the water and explore. And he posed a very simple question. You know, I said, Dad, what do they have planned for this area? What do they have planned for what's left of the island and this reef and the creatures that live in the area? So by pure coincidence, a few weeks later, this meeting was taking place. So to satisfy his curiosity and my curiosity, I went to the public meeting, and what they unveiled was a very large development for the waterfront that was very striking. It appeared to me and many others that it was way out of scale for the community. So basically, I went to this meeting to get more information, and I wasn't satisfied with the answers that they were providing the public as what they were going to do with the rest of the natural shoreline. So I decided, well, you know what, if they're not going to acknowledge the rest of the naturalized shoreline down there, then, well, you know what, I'll shoot the video to produce a YouTube video. And it was essentially pushing send on that YouTube video that led to where we are here today, the video. Captured some of the creatures that were living down there, the fact that there indeed was naturalized shoreline still left down there, and the fact that that was going to be infilled with acid bearing rock capped off, and they were going to build condos down there. So, for the most part, that's what the video showed. It sparked quite a bit of interest in what was happening on the waterfront. For the most part, the community was not aware of the scale and the scope of what was happening down there. If they had done such extensive consultations with the community, then why was it there were so many people in the community had no idea what was going on down there? My intention with the video was to send and walk away, but we had so much support from the community saying, you know what, you have to continue on with this because there's many people in the community that have been trying to speak up about this in previous public engagements, I guess. So if the community felt they weren't being listened to, as a direct result of the video, we had a number of news agencies contact us and want to do stories and social media as well. From there, because of this community interest, Sandra created a Facebook group, which was the place to go to find out what we were doing. It was important to us to do a lot of research to figure out what was happening down there and report to the public. So we did that through the Facebook group, and it just kept growing from there.
2: So how I became inspired is I'm a big advocate for the environment, and I saw what was happening, and I had heard about the 2010 meetings from many of the people in the community, including Mark, who said that they really didn't feel that they were being heard when they were speaking at the meeting. So I thought to myself, well, there's got to be a way. I went down and I saw this beautiful space and I had a picnic down there and had walks down there and hikes down there. It was such a beautiful space. I said, there's got to be a way to get involved. After the video went up, I started the Facebook page to have a place where the community could go and meet and voice their concerns. And we noticed that the Facebook group grew to over 600 people quickly. And then I thought there must be another way to reach out. So we started a Twitter account, at Save Bedford Reef, and that grew close to 2,000 followers within a year or so. And we found that it was quite an outlet for people to voice their concerns. Counselors were watching. The political system was watching. Our mayor, everybody. So it started to become more noticeable in mainstream. So it was a good way to reach out to the community. And we found other voices, not just in the community of Bedford, but in the HRM as a whole.
0: And for the benefit of listeners not in that part of the country, HRM stands for Halifax Regional Municipality.
2: So this is how we all got together and formed the group and said, you know, let's save this reef from being infilled and let's get this island. There's also an island that they had infilled called Crosby Island. Let's get this island dug back out, get the infill around the island removed. And we also spoke to other local community groups like the Sackville Rivers Association. They work on the river that feeds into it. And then our local Ecology Action Centre, we had coastal water reps that came and joined in on our meetings, and they did a lot of speaking at our rallies and stuff like that. So it became like a little movement.
0: And at that point, was there some kind of approvals process happening that you could intervene in to try and stop the development?
1: There's approvals all along this entire process. Right from day one, the approvals for the infilling, uh, the approvals for things like building permits, building permits, is actually through the city itself, and it hasn't reached that stage yet. But one thing we did definitely intervene on was local area residents were very upset with the continued infilling of the Bedford Waterfront. So, in fact, what happened was that because of the public pressure on Waterfront Development Corporation, they have actually halted the infilling. So, at this point, there's 18.3 acres of area that's been infilled, and they were scheduled to infill over twice that amount. So there's half of what they had planned for infill down there. So we've made significant traction on intervening on in that respect.
0: And lay out for listeners why you object to the infilling.
1: Well, A, we believe it's simply wrong to infill productive intertidal zone area. That I is mean. very productive regarding migratory birds, juvenile fish. We, we just simply... I think that is wrong to infill one of the most beautiful natural assets we have in the region, the Bedford Basin on the shores of the Bedford Basin. In fact, the city has admitted that there's in the vicinity of 30 years worth of developable land terrestrially already there. So why is it necessary to infill our beautiful shorelines here when you have all this other land that you could develop for condos and you know multi-use purposes?
2: The fact that they were dumping pyritic slate into our Bedford Basin in large loads concerned me. We were taking pyritic slate from New Brunswick, other provinces because they had to have somewhere to dump it and they're just dumping it here in the basin. It just didn't seem right to us.
0: What was it that your group did to win this victory and to get them to stop the infilling?
2: Fundamentally it was to educate the public.
1: That's been our tactic from day one. We relied heavily on our own research, so I spent a lot of time either at the archives or the Registry of Deeds. We also had a Freedom of Information release, a federal release, and a provincial release. So based on that research and what we discovered, we would feed our social media campaign with facts and statistics. We actually used some of the literature that Waterfront Development had released in the 2010 study, so we made that a little more accessible to the public as well. For example, we would tweet out pictures of the enormous, what we were calling a city on the waterfront. So we get a lot of traction just by educating. We feel that, you know, how can local area residents make decisions if they don't have all of, or a lot more information than what they were supplied with? And once they find out a lot more of the details, they say, wow, where can we sign up in support of a coastal park and put a stop to such tremendous infilling on our waterfront?
2: We've had several rallies and we've had large public meetings and workshops given the community a lot of opportunity to give their input. And we also would show up at like local farmers markets, anywhere there was large gatherings of people so that we could get the word out even more. The ones that don't have social media or weren't seeing it on social media, at least they would see us in person and could ask about what was going on down there. It's like Mark said, it's all about education.
0: Tell me more about the rallies and meetings, how they were organized, who came, that kind of thing.
2: The rallies were largely organized over social media, so we'd pick our rally point and then we'd graph out our maps and everything and we'd go on and let everybody know this is the day we're going to rally, this is where we're going to rally, and we'd do a media release and we'd get local media there. Lots of local reporters would show up with their cameras, so we'd get some coverage that way. But we'd have large groups of people show up too, and we'd have all the signs and everything pre-made. And we kind of laid them out near the water and let everybody pick the sign that they felt represented themselves the best. Like some people were concerned about density. Some people were concerned about the environment specifically. Some people concerned about just wanting a park. So we had signs that said all of these different things so that no one was pigeonholed into holding one particular sign. And they would pick what they felt round true to them. So then we would have a rally, and then usually every spring, we give them an announcement that we're going to have another rally, because it's all about momentum. And other groups started calling us, asking us for assistance and asking us for advice, because we had done so well getting the word out to the community that other groups would start calling and saying, how do we plan a rally? How do we reach the public?
0: What kinds of things would you hear from residents, uh, both in person at these kinds of activities and on social media? What were they most concerned about in terms of the waterfront? And also, did you hear from people who were in favor of the development?
2: Very few. And this is one of the things that we remark about all the time. Over the last five years, very few comments came in in favor of the development. And in fact, when we go to the workshops, the developers themselves held a workshop because of all the publicity we'd been putting out there. We did our own workshop and they retaliated with having their own, which we also went to. Even at that workshop, we didn't hear a lot. There might have been a few voices that were pro some development, but largely, they all wanted the park. Like, they had one of those boards that you could pick from multiple choice, which development you thought looked the best. And I actually have tweeted out the picture that got the most green dots on it, that the community was in favor of a large coastal park by far. So the evidence was overwhelming that there was such a want for this coastal park. So we would hear things like, we're so glad that you guys started this because we felt like our voice wasn't being heard. We had no one to tell. We'd call our local counselor, but we didn't really know what would happen after that. And people would email in. But now they have a direct line of communication. Like as soon as the developer makes a move, we tweet or we let the people know. And then we'll tweet out the forms where they're supposed to give their feedback, et cetera. So now they feel like they're keeping on top of the ball and we're watching what the developers are doing. So people are happy about that.
0: Tell me more about the group itself, the structure of the group, how often you meet, that kind of thing.
2: We don't meet as often as we used to now because we're waiting on the traffic studies. We used to meet once a week for a period of almost a whole year. And that's when things were really fired up and we were in meetings with the waterfront development all the time. And, you know, that's when we really had to be meeting every week. Now we might meet once every four months. We're waiting on these traffic studies and we're also recruiting more people now. You know, you have ebb and flow in any group, like some people moved, they've moved out of province, so you have to replace those people. Or some people get burned out. Things like this that go on for a long period of time, group members, their lives change. Some people get married, they have babies, life goes on, and some of them just get burned out or tired or don't have the time anymore. So you have to be always looking to replace those people with fresh people that are ready to get out there and educate the community. So, no, we don't meet as often as we used to because we're not in the situation right now where we need to. Once those traffic studies come in, we'll be meeting more regularly. I just want to add, Mark was our main researcher for the group. We had people doing different. That's one thing I will say. If you're going to form a group like this, get people that are strong in each field, one for social media. You need someone to do your social media. You need a researcher and never tweet something that's not a fact. Don't get caught up with misinformation because they will call you on it right away. We also had people that were door knockers that could go out into the community. You need a group that everybody has a special skill because it's an enormous amount of work. I will say Mark did five years worth of research and he researched this like a fine tooth comb. So no matter what question would come at us, we could answer it properly. Or if someone asked something on social media, we could answer it properly. That's a really important thing if you're going to have one of these groups and try to educate the community. Get your research down and get someone that enjoys to be in the books because that's what it takes. We had people in our group who were very social and knew a lot of people in the community. And they would go on a Saturday and stand out front of like a grocery store and hand out flyers. We had flyers printed. They would talk to people and they would say, hey, do you know what's going on down there? And a lot of people would say, oh, no, actually, I thought they were putting a ferry in down there. And they'd say, well, no, actually, that's not what's happening. And they would kind of find out what people were saying they thought was happening so that we could get a handle on what we should really tell them because they had no idea. And then we sent people out door to door in some of the newer parts of Bedford just because we thought they were kind of disconnected and didn't hear much of what was going on down at this end. So people actually went door-to-door with the petitions as well. The petitions we would take to rallies, we'd take them to farmers markets, and we also took them door-to-door.
0: And tell me more about the current state of the official process that is determining what's going to happen with the waterfront.
1: In terms of what's going to be put down there, in terms of development and park space or whatever. So we're at that stage... Another process there is the Bedford Corridor study, which was infrastructure and transit. So based on that study, it's going to help, I guess, dictate what can happen on the Bedford waterfront. So we're sort of at that stage. So things are on hold down there. They're doing studies as to how they can preserve the natural area at this point and integrate it into this development. As a community group, what us and many local area residents would like to see is a significant park down there for the community. They expropriated 34-acre waterlock from the public as it was a navigable waterway. And local area residents had to put up with 10 years of an endless parade of dump trucks hauling rock down to this designated dump site. So, you know, we're saying let's pay it forward back to the community, turn a significant chunk of that site into a coastal park for the community. So that's where we're at.
2: Right now, the way they have the timeline is December 2015, Is supposed to be when they start making decisions about the traffic study and the infrastructure studies that came in because they have a big problem with traffic on the highway down near that area. It's very heavy. So they're looking at trying to put a bridge in and multiple things that have to be approved by council, approved by the city. So they've got a timeline and it's looking like December 2015 they'll start making some decisions then that means that we need to be ready to roll. We're trying to get the word out as much right now and get as many meetings in place right now as we can to combat what's coming in December because we're at the mercy of those traffic and infrastructure reports.
1: When it gets to the city process, there are going to be a number of public consultations, and it would be at that point where there's going to be a lot more input from the community as to how the waterfront should look. So there's going to be a balance between what the infrastructure study report says and the wishes of the community. So there's going to be definitely a round of consultations that's going to, uh, I guess, try and strike that balance.
2: And we'll be ready. As soon as we know there's a public hearing coming, we will be sending out on our email list. We have an email list that we send out to, and we'll also blow it out on social media for everyone. We rally as many people as we can to be there, and they come out in great numbers.
0: Tell me about the connection you see between the in-person, on-the-ground work of building what you've built and the social media side of things, because people often talk about them as if they're opposed and different, but it sounds like they've been very interrelated in what you've done.
1: Yeah, we very clearly saw how we could balance both a traditional method of reaching people and the new way of reaching people, and that goes back to doing solid research and combining the social media with what we were doing on the ground. So if we were down on the reef that day, you know, Sandy would tweet it out. So there was definitely an interconnection between what we were doing on the ground and what she was doing online. So feeding that social media campaign was critical.
2: We spent a lot of time with the social media getting the word out and helping everybody spread it. I would say that a lot of the work, too, that helped us was from Ecology Action Center. I know that there was two people there that were instrumental in getting the word out on the Halifax side as well. And they would come out to all our events and they would talk to people at our events. So right there on the ground, like if someone had a question about coastal water and living shorelines, they could go right to the people that worked for Ecology Action Center and ask them in detailed questions. So it was nice to make those people available to the community. Something very important that we did and something kind of fun. You have to keep the fun into it for the community. We actually took part in one of the large parades in our community. We had a float. It was so fun and we actually involved, it, it got the attention of children too. It was kind of fun for the kids because we actually had live mermaids come sit on the back of our float and the kids just loved it. Kids were following our float. And we had one of our guys, he was our process guy. He's interested in the way that city process happens and the way things are handed down. He was dressed as a Grinch. And he had a great big shovel, pretending to shovel infill. And, and, I mean, people were laughing and clapping as we went by. We had two huge banners on the side of the float so that it had our website and it also had links for our Facebook. It was a nice way to involve the community. They remembered it. People were talking about our float. Even if you hadn't heard of, Save the Bedford Reef, they saw our float because it was just really great. It was a real team effort. It was fun for our team. We all got together one Saturday and decorated it to the hilt and then we all jumped on, and some of the people in our team who had children invited their children on, and the kids just had a ball. It was a real feel-good, fun thing for the community and us. You have to have some fun amongst the fight.
1: We have a very good social media presence right now. She's done a remarkable job building the numbers on both Twitter and Facebook. In many cases, our social media presence has become a bit of a hub for news, and not just in the waterfront, but sometimes other things that happen in the city as a whole.
0: You mentioned earlier that one of the things that has come out of this is that other groups have at times come and asked for advice based on the success that your group has had. What kind of advice would you give to listeners who might be facing similar issues in their communities?
2: I would say go out in your community, find the people that feel the same way and that they want to support the cause. If you're going to start a group, ask them if they're going to have the time to put into the group and how much time they'll have because sometimes people, they say they're, they're going to put the time in and then they don't they kind of float off once they see that there's work involved. My advice would be, you know, research, research, research. That's the biggest thing. Find out everything you can. Make friends, talk to your counselors, get your counselors on your side, try to remain amicable and keep a good relationship with them. Interview your mayor, you know, get get a meeting with your mayor, talk to the political parties, send letters to the political parties, send letters to the feds, the province, do whatever you can to make it known. Write letters, and most of all, write well-crafted letters. And always act in a respectful manner because we found that we got a lot of respect because of the way that we handled ourselves.: What's important
1: too, make it easy for your supporters to get involved. You know there's so many busy people, busy families and people busy with their work lives. So if you can find ways to make it easy for them to download a petition to sign or you get in the community with a petition, Whatever way that you can leverage your either your social media or your online presence or whatever documentation you have, you got to make it easy for them to get involved. A lot of people want to get involved, but they don't have the time, so you have to make it easy for them to get involved.
2: Just another point, branding, very important. Think of it like a business. You need a logo, you need your website, you need your Facebook, you need your Twitter. You need to have your branding out there so people, it's instantly recognizable. The second piece of advice, and this was given to us by one of my mentors, Walter Regan, who's with the Sackville River Association. He's run it for years and he's got the immense respect of communities beyond here for the work he's done over the years to save the river. He told us early days when we first met him, he said, stick to your message, keep it short, keep it simple, and pound it out over and over again. He said, if it's three points, like our points was protect the reef and then save Crosby Island, create a park. We had three points. And we would say that in all our documents, even if it was a banner, short point form, keep your message short, keep it concise and keep saying it over and over again. Repetition, because with your branding, your logo and all your social media and your three points or your four points, people remember that it makes it easy because like Mark said, people are busy. They're taking in a lot on social media, on TV, everywhere in their lives. Keep it short and concise and always stick to your message. Don't change your message.
1: And don't underestimate the amount of support that's in your community. We're just floored. When I pushed send on that YouTube video back in July 1st, 2010, I was amazed at just how many people came out of the woodwork that were in support of this. Or two veterans that were in the Merchant Marine, they'd say, you know, I can't understand how they're allowed to do things such as fill in the basin. How does does that process happen? So, uh, you know, we just get it from so many different angles.
2: One final point, and this is very, very important. Early days, some people will say to you, and I've had family members say it, and eventually they came on board and, you know, we're very supportive, but they'll say to you early days, you're crazy. You're never going to make a difference. You're crazy to do this. What makes you think you can stand up against a big developer like that who has deep pockets? We have no money, no funding. Don't listen to that. Stick to your guns. A small crowd of people can grow into a large crowd of people. And Margaret Mead, my favorite quote, I always post that quote. You know, never doubt what a small group of community can do. They can change the world. And it's true because five years later, people are congratulating us. And some of those people are the same people that said to us day one, you'll never win this. You'll never get that reef protected. You'll never get that spot protected. You're crazy.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Sandra Banfield and Mark Curry of the Save Bedford's Waterfront Society. To learn more about their work, Go to savebedfordwaterfront.ca or follow them on Twitter at ampersand save Bedford Reef. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca.